This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. On our potluck uh, after service, one of the things I've invited people to do is bring a fish story to share. And I do have one that I'm going to share as well uh, at lunch. Um, But, you know, I've been thinking about stories, and I like stories. Uh, Probably y'all figured that out by now. Um, and uh, one of the, the uh, it's Halloween time, and so what a whole new season has been released of Stranger Things, right? And so uh, in the evening, uh, the last couple evenings, I get to sit in the rocking chair with my 12-week-old grandson, who is pretty much all cheeks at this point, and rock him while I watch these this scary series. Definitely perfect for binge-watching at Halloween. So if you haven't binge-watched Stranger Things yet, start with the first season. And yes, it is kind of corny. It's set in the 1980s around a group of junior high school boys um, with a few girls thrown in um, as they, uh, this nerdy uh, group of friends encounters the stranger things in the world. And I was thinking, too, how often it is, and we just expect this in storytelling, that people will encounter and that the stranger, that this, it's not so strange that we have a plot where evil is lurking, where there's a, this, for this young man, this isn't a spoiler, but he, there's this sort of fissure in reality that he moves into this whole different world that somehow exists, and they call this world the Upside Down. And it's classic Halloween set-keeping, right, with the decay and the weird ash in the air, and evil is there. Great, horrible, unknown, alien, evil And how often it is that that's what our stories are about, these great encounters with this horrible evil, and that that doesn't seem strange to us at all. In fact, if you were to have a writer's workshop, you'd say, oh, we have to have this thing. You know what's stranger is a tremendous, amazing encounter with good. That's really a stranger thing. We don't expect it. Would we know it if we saw it? I had a dream many, many, many years ago. And it scared me a lot. It was a nightmare. I was walking along a road, and it was a country road, and so it had sort of the blacktop pavement. But you know how country roads, they hit to the side, and it's all grown up in the, the, with, with plants, and there's just a small line where the dirt... Uh, makes an uneven line against the tarmac. And it was warm, but not so warm that the smell of the road comes at you. You could still smell the beautiful meadow. And the meadow stretched out as far as I could see. And it was tall plants, a number of flowering plants from within this mix of green. It's absolutely beautiful. And I looked out across the landscape facing this way, and I see off in the distance this sort of odd sticking up 
spire or stick or something. And I'm like, what is that? And so my dream self moves through the grasses and all the smell and the crickets. I mean, it's like perfect. And as I got closer, that's when the terror hit me. Absolute terror. I was so frightened that I couldn't wake up properly out of the dream. I felt caught in the dream. And I wanted out and I wanted away. And I woke up and my heart was racing. It's racing. At the time I was in counseling, I've been in counseling many points in my life. Um, and I reported this dream to my counselor. And this particular counselor was um, one that introduced me to dream work, how you can sort of return into the dream space in a safe way and look again. And so I did. And it took a little bit of time for me to not feel that terror. But I got closer and I got closer and I realized, oh my gosh, there's a snake, there's a snake wrapped around this thing, this staff in the ground. And it was horrifying. And I drew it, I took out the color pencils and I drew it. And then I looked at it and I said, my gosh, it's the staff of life. What? And I remembered the story of Moses in the wilderness. The people are complaining. We don't like it here. We don't have any clean water. We're stuck with you and you're no good. And we hate the bread. And so the Lord said, well, fine, you bunch of ingrates. See if I'm going to protect you. And pretty soon there's this plague of poisonous snakes. And people bit, were bitten and people died. And the people said, help us. And Moses erected a staff with a snake, bronze snake. And if you were to look upon this staff, the poison would be uh, neutralized and you would live. Well, what was the staff of life doing in the middle of my nightmarish dream? And what did that even mean? There are many different kinds of ways of encountering the divine voice and the divine presence in our lives. Because I'm a person who has visions and experiences beyond what I understand, it's always interested me. What on earth happens? What is going on? Am I crazy? And I was born not into a culture that values those sorts of experiences, but to one who would roundly laugh in the face of anybody who claimed to have one. This is a book called Visions of Jesus, and it's an academic book where this man has chronicled folks who claim to have had experiences of God. And um, even though it was written in 1997, right, so clearly, you know, not not terribly uh, old by all the books I've ever seen in the library. Some of these are quite, quite old. It, I, I, and I got this like 10 years ago. Right in the front, it's a print, a little stamp in red that says, discarded, outdated, redundant material. <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh, that's exactly right. That's what we think of this. You know, if you have a Jesus experience, you know, ah, you know, you just don't know any better, right? Um, and yet, to be Christian 
you know, the encounter with that which is greater than us is part of what we are invited into. And our stories, our gospel stories are full of these encounters, just full of them. And the story that we read today is one of those, very much so. There's a couple of stories I want to share with you from here. Uh, a woman named Pauline, um, and she talks about how she had been very suicidal at one point in her life, terribly terribly depressed, and that when she, was, um, uh, when she was a young mother, she remembers fighting this depression because she knew that her daughter needed her and that she couldn't succumb to this horrible weight that she felt. And she said she was laying there one day at night and she felt this presence in the room. And she couldn't, she couldn't, uh, uh, really identify like, um, but it wasn't, it didn't feel frightening at all. It felt amazing. And, and it wasn't like a dream. It was like somebody was really there. And it was a man and he was standing there and he was wearing regular street clothes. But she knew that it was God. She knew that it was Jesus. And she said, it was so amazing, and I felt so filled up with love. And Jesus said to her, it's going to be okay. And she said she wanted to reach out and touch him, but didn't know if she could or she should. And then when he said that, she knew it might be okay, and she reaches out her hand, and their hands touched. She had a, that recurred. She had that present, that sense of presence happened for her again at another time. And a third time, she had what she would calls as a vision, where she looked up at the sky, and it was like the whole thing just became a brilliant light. And she saw Christ at the center. And she says, it's different. It's not the same when there's this actual sense that someone is there with you, flesh and blood, versus a vision here. And anybody who does this kind of work will tell you that visions are not a one-size-fits-all. But there have been and can be experiences somehow of the physicality of what we have encountered. The other story is from a gentleman named Henry who was out in the snow, um, a Greek Orthodox gentleman and he reported how the snow had mysteriously disappeared at the spot where Jesus stood. He had often gone to this place to pray because as a teenager, he had done things that he regretted. And one day when he went there, Jesus was standing in that spot. And after the experience of seeing Jesus, real, like a person standing there. It faded, and the area of the grass where he had been standing was all melted. The brown grass from the cold winter now showed there. And he reported how he went over to it and stood in it, trying to fathom what just happened. We don't have teachers in our culture to help us. This was something that I lamented terribly as, as a young person trying to figure out what it meant. 
you know, I didn't want to go off the deep end. But something happened. Something happens. And sometimes these journeys can be like fissures. Fissures in the world we know that bring us somehow closer. It's also called thin spaces. Sometimes we use the language portals. People talk about in near-death experiences moving through a great portal of light. And we find ways to talk about them. But they're not all the same. And without a teacher, it can be very frustrating. Is it real? What part of this have I brought out of my own need and fear? And what part of this is the divine reaching out to me? So we have this stories in the gospel where Jesus is with us, flesh and blood, a human child born to a human mom and dad by the power of the Spirit in this tiny little manger. And he grows up like any child would in Galilee. And then he shoulders the burden of teaching us rascally humans a better way to live our lives. And he is killed for it. But that's not the end of the story because what had happened was so much bigger than flesh and blood, so much bigger than you and I. People begin to see the Lord. Jesus returns in different forms, in different ways. And all these become the resurrection experiences. And they range from experiencing thin places to seeing people in the flesh where Jesus literally eats at the table with them or walks along a path to vision experiences where God is in the sky or somehow present in some other way, in a stranger. And Peter and the disciples in this story, they're out fishing, and we get this story a little bit in Luke This is the only place in John where the sons of Zebedee show up. This story comes as a kind of addendum to the Gospel of John, which is already over. But something really important about the resurrection experiences in the Gospel tradition meant that this needed to be added in so people better understood what the Gospel was about here, better understood the enduring nature of God in the world and Jesus in the world. And it catches them off guard. They were fishing. They haven't caught anything. This echoes the story of Luke. They're in their work clothes. The, the says that, that Peter was naked, but much more likely he was wearing a loincloth because the garment is a garment you, that he puts on is when you wear overclothing. And Jesus is standing there in the flesh. What do you do with that? And Peter has a chance to reconcile some of the things that hadn't gone so well. Peter gets a chance to sit with Jesus one last time. And Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I love you. Well, is it so clearly, of course? Who was it that betrayed Jesus? Denied him. 
Peter hadn't actually shown up as being somebody who was all in, that had super leadership qualities. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we don't really see him step up as a leader. But clearly, something is happening here. And so Jesus asks him again, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Well, that's two. Do you love me? And then it says Peter was hurt. This is a bit of an honor challenge, an honor exchange. You know, when Jesus asked for people to stand by him, Peter hadn't done that. And Jesus needed to be sure that this was going to happen. But clearly this is a process. Clearly Christianity isn't about a light switch. Suddenly you're boom, perfect. But more of a struggle where we are shaped many times by that which we encounter. That the poisons of the world can be expunged by an encounter with great good that helps move us past the difficulty that we know, past the expectations that we hold that we will only encounter evil in this world, to daring to see the good, to to daring to believe. In the Gospel of John, we get this wonderful phrase, he believed into God, into Jesus. Didn't just believe in That creates this lovely, comfortable distance, doesn't it? I believe in something. You know, it gets us, we get the Western mind, right? We get to stay at arm's length and be the objective looker who gets to make the judgment and decide. When you believe into something, you are moving into it. Through that dream, that staff of life in my dream, that never left me. It became a really important touch point for me. Not only that I had been so terrified at first and the power of remembering what a powerful turn that had been, what an incredible invitation it had been to look differently and how terrifying it is when God shows up. We are all invited to believe into Jesus. Not in, you know, a trite, corny, bang the drum kind of way, but a way that we're willing to let go of the safe distance, the superior mind, right? Do you see how this holds me above God? I'm going to believe into you. I'm going to make that judgment and decide for myself. It's a terrifying thing to let go that safe little perch. Well, that's kind of scary. <laughs> the safe perch, which is really, is that safe? When we hold ourselves away from God, are we finding life? Or are we fooling ourselves? that somehow we've got it under control. Lean in, believing into Jesus. And when you do that, what happened for me is that the first thing I experienced 
is that God loved me. The first encounter is this incredible love that cannot be communicated. This incredible love (laughs) that you don't deserve and you get right at that moment that that doesn't matter. (laughs) You're not loved because you deserve it. It's not even on the table. You're loved because God loves you. Because God is love. And that gave, gave me courage. I can lean in a little. I can get down from my suicidal perch. And then you feel your love swell. And your love becomes big. And you feel that connection with this great love. And as you lean in, you feel Christ's love. The love not just for you, but the love that Christ feels for others. And you get it, the love your neighbor thing. You get it, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself because this is not different than Christ, Christ's self does. That that great love is so bottomless and so endless and so eternal that it does become a thin space. It's like a fissure in the universe. It's present in flesh and blood. It can be like a painting dashed across the sky because there are all these different ways that it can be because it's so big and so hard to explain and so hard to quantify and you cannot contain it or control it or hold it at a distance. It just is. And when you're willing to believe into that, the gift that flows from that, the life that flows from it, the poison that is thrown aside. As a pastor, the unbelievable gift of getting to love each of you because that is what Christ in me loves. Not because I'm anything but a shallow, foolish, silly human being but because I am loved and I am willing to believe into the love of God and be foolish and stand in the meadow and love fiercely like Jesus did because it is Jesus' love that is what is there. So... I invite you to find the fissures and the thin places, to be bold when you see something erupt into your life, to trust in the good. I dare you to assert that the stranger thing is choosing love and then to do it. Thanks be to God. Let's take a minute just to breathe through that. And I, if I had a hope for any or wish for any of you, is that you might feel that love and be willing to draw it into yourself and just let, let that be what it is.